Hey, thanks so much for joining us at our Red Rocks Church podcast. If you're new here, we're just a bunch of broken, messed up, imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. We hope that this message encourages your heart, builds your faith so that you can say yes to all of the plans and the purposes of God for your life. Enjoy this message. Come on, Red Rocks Church, make some noise. How we doing? Hey, can we make some noise as we welcome everybody that's watching from around the world at our Red Rocks Church online campus. We're so glad that you're joining with us. And I just wanna say this, wherever you're watching from, wherever you find yourself in life, maybe this weekend or maybe you're watching this 10 years in the future, but I just wanna say wherever you find yourself, you are family here, you are loved, you are valued, you are accepted, and this message right here is specifically for you. So I wanna encourage you wherever you find yourself relationally, maybe you're married, maybe you're single, maybe you wanna be married, maybe you never wanna be married, or maybe you're married and you wish that you weren't. This message is for you. I believe that it's gonna impact your life in a profound way. And I just wanted to say, welcome home. Welcome to the family. We're so glad that you're here. I, I wanna spend some time this weekend taking a look at an interesting passage. And this passage is found in Ephesians 5. And I've, I gotta be honest, it's a very challenging uh, topic to be, to be able to speak upon. It's a very interesting passage to try to teach on but I believe that it's gonna have profound ramifications for your life. I believe that there's a message within the message that is gonna influence you no matter where you find yourself, no matter what your relational status is, this message has the power to transform your heart because it is the primary message of Jesus Christ for broken and sinful humanity. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in the category of broken and sinful humanity apart from Christ. So this weekend, I wanna encourage you, lean in, lean in, lean in. You can be seated, and I just wanna take a quick moment to just set some things up this weekend and create some context for where we're gonna to go together. In Ephesians 5, verse 21 is where we're gonna pick up. And it's an interesting passage. Many of you, if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard this passage before. But it says this, and, and further, and he's saying, and further, because he just spent the entire previous chapter unpacking to the church to live a life that is full of love. And his emphasis on this passage was not live a life where you muster up as much love as you possibly can, but his emphasis is on enjoy as much of the love of God as you possibly can and watch it leak out of your life, overflow out of your life. So then he goes on and he begins to share with us how this love will then in turn impact our households, which is what we wanna know. And so he says, and further, everybody say, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So notice the whole passage is set up by saying, listen, have a reverence, have an awe, have a wonder of who Christ is. Submit to one another in that way. I'm going to unpack what that actually means. Verse 22, it says, wives, ladies, where you at? Ladies, where you at? Ladies are weak. Fellas, you're coming up next, so get ready. I'm going to show them how to grunt. Wives, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as also to the Lord. 
And then it goes on in verse 25, and it says, for husbands, where's the husbands at? Fellas, represent, sorry, ladies, disadvantage, I didn't give you the key. Um, For husbands, it says this, this means love your wives. Everybody knows you ought to love your wives, right? It's not new news. Getting some head shakes. Love your wives. Just as Christ loves the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. And he says this, and washed by the cleansing of God's word. I want to spend some time taking in maybe a little bit of a unique approach around this passage to just help us really grab the truth that the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate. Because at first glance, you read this, and husbands, if you are anything like me, which I'm going to assume you are because you're a human, loving your wife to the capacity and to the extent that God loved his church, that Jesus Christ loved his church, is a losing battle. Can I get an amen from many fellas? Just so your wife knows you're not the only one that can't do it. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I want to spend some time talking about what the Apostle Paul was hoping that people would grab when he penned this letter. And I want to take a unique approach, but I believe it's going to bless your life. Would you pray with me? God, the hope of my heart today is that you would empower me through your spirit to communicate a message, God, that doesn't leave us leaving buildings, leaving computer screens, leaving the gym, wherever we're watching this from. It doesn't leave us fixated and introspective on our own lives, considering how we ought to respond, considering um, what we must do. But God, my, my hope and my prayer is that people would leave, where our, regardless of where they're watching from, with their eyes fixated upon you. Jesus, the gospel narrative is not a message of what we must go and do. It is what we must hear and believe because work has already been done. And God, because of that belief in the work that's already been done, fruit just flows from our life naturally. So God, I just pray that today as we unpack your word, as we look to your scripture, Holy Spirit, I just ask for your assistance in making this clear. Jesus, would you navigate these these moments that we share, God, and would you encourage our hearts? Would you allow us to leave this space more in love with you because you have first loved us in a way that we can never wrap our minds around? We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus and everybody at Red Rocks Church, wherever you're watching from, said, Amen. amen, amen. Well, food is kind of a big deal in my family. We are... Um, from the Midwest, and if you've ever been in the Midwest, you know they know how to do food. They, they lather it up in gravies and sauces and butters and sugar, chocolate sauce. Come on, somebody. We know how to do it. Cracker barrels on every highway. Come on, somebody. Someone just fell out in the spirit. We know how to do food, and in my family in particular, we were Germans, and so we knew how to do food right. It was the fatty food that made you feeling awful, but in the moment made you feel amazing. And kind of the birthplace and where this all began was with my great-grandmother. She had an amazing German name. Her name was Ida Blumenhagen, if you're taking notes, Ida Blumenhagen, And one of Nana's, what we called her, because Blumenhagen was hard for a two-year-old, Nana, she had the gift of making pound cake. Come on, somebody. I said pound cake. 
Um, she made the, the most amazing pound cake. And, and every time we went over to Nana's house, she'd always be f- uh, cooking up a fresh batch of pound cake. It was amazing. You couldn't eat enough of it. Um, you were never tired of it. It wasn't like that, the fruit cake that some of your Nana's made growing up. And you were like, please keep the fruit cake away. We wanted more of Nana's pound cake. But there was one problem. Nana passed away at the ripe old age of like 94 years old. Amazing life. But one of the downsides of her life was that she left us a recipe of which whenever we would try to follow this recipe, it didn't taste like Nana's pound cake. I don't know if you've ever tried to follow a recipe and it just didn't taste like the original. Um, But this is exactly what happened to us. And so time and time again, we've tried to replicate Nana's pound cake and we try to make tweaks and changes. The problem is Nana didn't use her recipe when she made her pound cake. So every time we would make it, it tasted fine, but it was just different. And one of the things that you realize is that we wish, in hindsight, we would have spent some more time with Nana watching her whip up some pound cake so that we could effectively make it again. And the problem with some of these scriptures, what it reminds me of is it's like trying to mimic Nana's pound cake when you read this passage and then go and try to accomplish this. How many of you know, if you don't know this, this might be good news for you, the the whole premise of the gospel and the whole of scripture is not a list of demands of do's and don'ts of things you must do to earn God's love, favor, and salvation. It it is a, a letter, a love letter of sorts that God had written pen to paper for our behalf in order that he might persuade us to believe in something that he has already done. But the problem is a lot of us look at scripture, in particular Ephesians 5, we read husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then we try to go and do that. I want to talk to you about why it's detrimental for this passage in particular, especially as you look at the whole of what the Apostle Paul is trying to write in the book of Ephesians. He's trying to persuade people to not just look at something that is informational, but look at something that was intended to be transformational. There's a difference. He isn't just saying, get some head knowledge and go and do it. He's trying to say, get the message, let it transform you and watch what happens There is a big difference, and this is what the gospel is all about. It is listening to a message, responding to what has been done, and watching the fruit manifest in your life. Leave Nana's pound cake alone. You can drop that in the chat. But the problem with our culture is we come into churches oftentimes, and people have the the hope of, preacher, tell me what I need to go and do. I'm stuck. Tell me what I need to go and do. Give me the to-do list. Give me what I need to do. And that's not what this passage is all about. Ephesians 5.25, I want to read it again and just spend some time unpacking this for a little bit. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, it says, In order to, verse 26 says, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. I want to spend some time unpacking this. And the reason I want to put the emphasis on the fellas is because women, oftentimes when we hear the idea of submission, submit to your husbands, you're like, heck no. 
Submission is, is a, a hot button item right now in our culture. Women don't want to submit, but it's because they've seen an inappropriate demonstration of submission. So I want to talk for a second about the fellas, what it means to love like Christ, because ladies, if your husband or your future husband loves you like Christ, I promise you, stay with me, stay with me. You will want to submit your life to somebody that loves you like Christ. So I want to spend some time in Ephesians 5.25 because it says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as, which means in the same way, to mimic, to replicate, copy-paste, just as Christ loved the church. And it gives us a little glimpse into how he loved the church. It says he gave up his life for her. To make her holy and clean was his agenda, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Now, in Christianity, we lose sight on all sorts of topics and definitions. When we say God's word, most of you will point to your Bible. And before you think I'm heretical, hear me out. God's word was not the Bible. The Bible reinforces God's word. God had a message he was trying to communicate through to humanity. He used the Bible to do so. But, but the word says that in the beginning, before everything, was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The Bible is simply the message of the spirit, the nature of who God is. And so when, he, when the scriptures refer to God's word, he wasn't referring to the book of Ephesians. This was just a letter to a small church that just happened to be placed in scripture. This was a message that God was trying to reiterate, which was his word. So the question is, what was it about the love of God that was so radical that he had to give his life in order to cleanse people, humanity, the church, with the washing of God's word what was God's word for humanity? So glad that you asked. It's a brilliant question. I want to talk for a second. When it comes to the love of God that's found in Ephesians 5, the question that we have to ask is, how did God love the church? Because I could go around the room, pass the microphone, and we would come up with a hundred examples. But what does God say was his demonstration of his love? In Romans 5, 8, it gives us this answer. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates. Somebody say demonstrates. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. Here's how he demonstrated it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know how God demonstrated his love? Romans says he done it by dying for sinners while they were still sinners. If you're a sinner, you recognize your brokenness, your inability to create the quality of God's life for yourself, you are in good company because you are exactly the reason and the person that Jesus came to earth. Now, the question is, why did Jesus have to die for sinners so that people could be washed by God's word? The next question we want to ask is, what was God's word and why was death necessary? Which leads us to Ephesians 1 verse 7. And it says this, in him, everybody say in him, Amen. trying to get you to respond. In him... 
We have redemption through his blood, AKA his dying on the cross. We have redemption through his blood. That was how he demonstrated it, but this is why he demonstrated it. The forgiveness of sins in accordance, meaning in line with the riches of God's grace. So stay with me, I'm going somewhere. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he laid his life down so that she would be holy and blameless so that he could wash us with the cleansing of God's word. He, he's in, essentially saying, husbands, look at the love of God. Watch the pattern of how God's love was demonstrated and why it was demonstrated because as a result, you will watch as you get this understanding, loving your wife similarly to how God has loved the church, meaning how he loved you. You'll watch as the fruit of your life will enable you to love your wife in a way that reading this verse and going and doing never could. So I'm gonna take us on a little bit of a journey. This is why it's important to read God's word in its context, because just for you to go and do without getting the message that's embedded in the text, you will go and screw up Nana's pound cake every day of the week. So what I want to do is reinforce for just a little bit the love of God. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm not going to talk about your marriage. I'm not going to talk about how bad of a dad and a father you are. I'm not going to tell you about how, how unlikely it is that you're going to be a good mom or a good wife. We're going to leave all of that aside. This message is not about you. It is for you, okay? So I want to take some time just preaching about the love of God for us, and then we're going to circle back at the end and see why this is applicable for us to know in the context of our relationships. Why is forgiveness so central to the love of God? Why was forgiveness the primary Thing he wanted to communicate to humanity to share his love for us. I, I want to tell you a story that, that kind of encompasses this. So let me take us on a journey for a second. Stay with me. You can always re-listen to this message if you need to. But this, this story starts all the way back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of time. For those of you that aren't Bible scholars and maybe you haven't spent a lot of time in the church, the first two humans that God ever created was a man by the name of Adam and a woman by the name of Eve. They lived in what was called paradise. They enjoyed the full quality of God's standard of living. It's a standard of living that we can't even wrap our minds around, but they lived and enjoyed the fruit of God's quality of life that he provided for them, which means they had no lack. They had no pain. They had no uh, insufficiency. They, they had no problems. They had no head games, no anxiety, no fear, no depression, no panic, no anger, no remorse. It was perfect. The only thing that they could perceive was good because it was God's domain. So here they live in this perfect reality, everything provided for them by God. The Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. What scripture means when it says naked and unashamed didn't just mean that they were without clothes, which was true. The, the word naked actually refers to their inability to provide anything that God provided for them. They were naked, without covering, without ability to reproduce what God gave to them freely, but they didn't mind 
because God gave them everything that they needed, so they stood unashamed, unable to produce God's quality of life, but okay, because he did it for me naked and unashamed. I want to just take a second and, and just reinforce, could you imagine the world that they lived in without lack, without insecurity, without pain, without fear, knowing that in and of themselves, they couldn't produce any of this, but being okay with it? Physically, okay. Emotionally, okay. Everything about your past, no shame. The hidden thoughts of their mind, no shame. No remorse behind their motives or their desires or their fantasies or their intentions or their thoughts. They were fully known by God and fully loved and at perfect peace and rest. This was their reality. Pretty stinking amazing. It is perfect life. It is God's quality of life that is fullness of life and life to the full. There was only one problem. God gave them one caveat. He said, listen, all of this is yours freely. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to deserve this. I want to give this to you. Just don't eat of that fruit in the center of the garden, because if you do, it will produce death in every area of your life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm living in this reality, I'm going, okay, I'm good. I don't need to go and do that. I don't need to experience, I, I have life to the full. I don't need to experience this, but they fell into a deception where the enemy came in and he said, listen, that's not what God said. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will be just like God, being able to decipher what is both good and evil. This is where sin entered into the equation is when man had the eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to believe, mind to comprehend what was good and evil. They didn't have that ability before. I can't even fathom a world where I didn't, wasn't able to perceive good and evil because it's the world that we live in. So Adam and Eve, it says that they ate of the fruit and that their eyes were open. I want to read this for us for a second in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 7 says that then, after they ate of the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Notice nothing changed about them. They just noticed their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Verse 8 says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So in one moment, nothing has changed. God didn't declare something uh, inappropriate. He didn't condemn them. He didn't convict them. He didn't punish them. God is walking through the, the garden in the cool of the day, and the Bible says that they hid themselves from God. Then it says that they decided to cover themselves because they went in one moment, they had this huge shift and change. They went from naked and unashamed to clothed and ashamed. What would make them instantaneously feel clothed and still ashamed? 
The reason I want to bring this up is because this story encompasses not only what it looks like when Ephesians 5 talks about husbands loving your wife as Christ loved the church, it is relational dilemma 1.0. It is the very first relational conflict, and in the same story, it reinforces our need for forgiveness because this is when sin entered into the equation. We can learn a lot about Ephesians 5 from Genesis 3. So in one moment, naked and unashamed, to clothed and ashamed. I want to just take a quick moment and unpack this passage just for a second. Can we, can we nerd out for a second? Any nerds in the house? Any people that want to geek out? I, I, want, I want to unpack a few things because we have to understand what's happening to understand why Jesus' death and forgiveness was necessary. So let's take a look at, this, at their life. What happened is in a moment, they realized their nakedness, and the Bible tells us what they experienced was the, the sense of shame in their life. I want to look at this word shame because shame in the Greek is this word atima, and I have the definition up here for you. It's the Greek word atima, and the meaning of this word actually means disgrace. 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 If we look at the word disgrace, let's unpack this for a second because this will tell us what they felt. Dis is the prefix, which means the removal or reversal or opposite of. Grace, I've preached on this before. My favorite definition uh, and one of my favorite concordances is the divine influence of God upon the human heart. What they experienced hiding in the trees that day was the first experience in human history where man was disconnected from God's influence on their life. Now, I want to spend some time talking about this because it'll help us unpack and discover why forgiveness was so important in the first place. This was the very first time where man made his own decision to produce the quality of God's life for himself. He realized in a moment, I can't do this. And for the very first time, he realized the influence of God is not with me. Friends, what's interesting is the Bible says that in that moment, they took fig leaves and they clothed themselves when before they were clothed in the quality of God's life, a free gift. They went to clothe themselves. It is the perfect picture of shame. But what happens is that man clothed himself. What he was trying to do was hide his nakedness, for which God knew he made him that way. God knew his nakedness and his inability. That's why God provided everything as a free gift. So here man was hiding from God with fig leaves, a way that God had originally intended him to be. He is hiding, covering himself. But notice at the very same time, he is not just hiding from God. He is covering himself up from his wife. And his wife covering herself from the man. You think shame only impacts you? You're wrong. 
Shame influences your relationship with God, and I promise you, it will impact and influence every relationship that you have. And if you're married, I want you to lean in because you may not know, but you have been living guarded and protected and ashamed, which is cause for a lack of intimacy in your life with your spouse. Friends, shame is the number one thing that the heart of God is after. When the Bible says that God hates sin and you read about the wrath of God, the, 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 just the anger of God, it is always directed towards the sin, the nature of sin, the world that we live in that is so fixated now on our ability to perceive in and of ourselves what is good and what is evil. And God hates that because it was never his intention. We started this train in motion and God goes, no, it's not supposed to be this way. That's why shame is corrupting your life, my life, our relationships, and Jesus goes on a full-on attack and says, no longer do I want you to live in shame, in disgrace. I want you to live fully in my influence in your life. But can I ask you a question? Adam and Eve are sitting in the forest covered by fig trees. Can I ask you a question? Who shamed them? Who shamed them? I'm going to tell you the answer without making you read the passage and see who shamed them, but God never shamed them. Shame was not a byproduct of a correction from God. Shame was not a byproduct of an emotion that God exhibited when he saw this. They felt shame before they ever encountered God, before they ever spoke to God, before they ever uh, saw his face or saw his reaction. They felt shame in the moment that they stepped out of his covering. And the Bible in 1 John tells us something amazing about shame. Look who's behind shame. 1 John 3.20 says, if our hearts condemn us, if our hearts put us to shame, it is your heart that will condemn you every day of the week. Shame is a byproduct of man being able to see what is good and what is evil and constantly, internally, picking internally at what is good and what is wrong inside of you. And you live under the weight of I'm wrong. I do wrong. I am wrong. I do dirty. I am dirty. Shame is a byproduct of your own heart. But look what he goes on to say, such hope. He says, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And then he goes on to say this, and he knows everything. Adam and Eve didn't need to hide themselves from the protection and the covering of God. That was their own desire. God didn't say, put some clothes on, cover yourself up. Shame was a byproduct of man being able to determine for the very first time, I am either dirty or clean. I am either good or evil. That was never supposed to be our call. It was always supposed to be the word of God that determines how clean you are, how righteous you are, how pure you are, how lovely you are, how valuable you are. And for the very first time, because man took the reins to reproduce God's quality of life, they felt shame but God is greater and he knows everything. So here we have it, the very first couple in human history falling into to sin and shame for the very first time never happened before. Relational 
discomfort for the very first time never happened before. Relational conflict between man and God for the very first time never happened before. We can learn a lot about what happens here because it will tell us what God did a full-on attack to do by sending us his son, Jesus. Their shame was towards one another. Their shame was towards God, and their shame was internal. But can I tell you this? The problem of living in a sinful world is that you and I continue to eat of the fruit of shame all of our lives. We continue to decipher in our lives what is good and what is evil when that was never supposed to be our intent. God was supposed to do so on our behalf. But shame cloaks itself in a lot of weird ways. Shame isn't just the feeling that you feel after looking at pornography, drinking too much, having an affair, doing something that you shouldn't. Shame is the byproduct of trying to recreate the quality of God's life on your own. That's why people feel shame with how much money they make. They didn't pick it. I still make enough. I can't produce the quality of life that I know is hardwired in me. That's why people feel shame about their body image. That's why people feel shame about how well they use their time. Friends, shame is, is, is having its way and wreaking havoc in most of our lives, and we don't even know it, but every time you try to live out the quality of God's life on your own, take the reins and produce a, a, a God's quality, the fullness of life on your own, that is sin, and every time it's going to produce disgrace. It will remove you from God's influence on your life. What grace is is being able to stand in the place of nakedness where you cannot fulfill and produce the fullness of God's life on your own and going, but I'm okay with it. Influence me however you will. Here's what's amazing, and I love this. Moments after Adam and Eve sinned, clothed in their fig leaves, can I show you the heart of God since the beginning of time? The Bible says in Genesis 3, verse 21, look what God did. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife to clothe themselves. God saw man's attempt to clothe themselves, to hide themselves, to protect themselves. And God said, I didn't design you to live this way. I can't help but to clothe you better. Notice that God clothed them with skin. A little fun just thing that might pop up in a theological trivia one day. The first animals to ever be killed were killed on behalf of clothing Adam and Eve. They were clothed in a new skin. Friends, can I just give you a spoiler alert? This is foreshadowing of what Jesus had intended to do all along. Jesus was going to sacrifice something, and it happened to be Jesus Christ himself would be sacrificed, and the Bible says that because of what Christ did upon the cross, that his righteousness, the skin and the body in which he lived a sinful, a sinless and a perfect life now covers us, and so the Bible says every time that God sees us, he sees his skin. Jesus goes, you guys screwed this thing up, but I got grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You cannot run the love of God. God says, I'll clothe you. I will clothe you. 
I wanna read something because this word forgiveness gets unpacked throughout scripture in an unbelievable context that I want to make sure that you leave this weekend, this day, whenever you're watching this, understanding the vast nature of God's forgiveness because it will tell you way more about the love of God for you than reading Ephesians 5. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this. I'm going to do a little bit of reading. You guys okay? Just sit back. You don't need to read. You can just listen to me reading for you. It's super easy. It's going to be really fun. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this. Under the old covenant, meaning the covenant where man had to pay for his own sins, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar. Watch this day after day. Why? Because we sin a lot. He had to go there every day, day after day after day after day after day, offering the same sacrifice again and again. Why? Because it wasn't good enough to cover how good we are at sinning. He says, which can never take away sins. Just covers them for a moment. Just slaps a fig leaf on it for a moment. Verse 12 says, but our high priest referring to Jesus, offered himself to God as a sacrifice for sins. And watch this. He says, good for all time. All time? Yeah, from the time that time started to the time that time wears out. His forgiveness is good. And look what he says he did. He says, then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Verse 13, there he waits. Watch this. He waits. The battle is over. Not till he conquers them. Not till he fights them. Not till he defeats them. He waits seated in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he waits in this place until his enemies are humbled and made footstools under his feet. God's work is done. The forgiveness is done. Everything he wanted to do on our behalf was fulfilled in his forgiveness. And then he says this, for by that one offering he made forever. Somebody say forever. Drop it in the chat forever. I want to see hundreds of them forever made perfect. Perfect. Those who are being made holy. So friends, we stand in a place of perfection today, regardless of our behavior. But when we stand in this place of perfection, we will watch as holiness is produced from our life, not lived, not earned, not required. Holiness is a fruit something that God wants to give and give birth to in your life, being made holy. Verse 15 says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. So he's going, we're unified on this front. It's not just kind Jesus holding us back from a wrathful God. He goes, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is also testifying of this same truth. For he says, this is a new covenant, aka a new promise from God. I will make with my people on, the, on that day. What day? The day that Jesus Christ died upon the cross. Forgiveness was completed when Christ died because with him died the sins of humanity, the Bible says. And look what he says. On that day, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts. 
before he put it in our hands to go and do. Now he's gonna put it in our hearts so that it flows out from us. And I will write them on their minds. God will write them on our minds. Then he says this, I will never again remember. I will never again remember. I will never again remember. I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Verse 18 says, and when sins have been forgiven, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices, meaning you don't even have to punish yourself with shame. Punishment is over. They're paid for in full. From the first day to your last day, your sins are covered. That word, been forgiven, in the Greek is in perfect tense. That perfect tense means that God forgave us of all of our sins, and this has continuing effect, meaning that we not only have been forgiven, but we stand in an environment of forgiveness that anytime sin pops out, God goes, I got that one too. Anything wrong in nature pops out, he goes, I got that one too. And here's, here's, here's why this is so important, because for so many people, they go, no, don't tell them that, because people are just going to keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. I want to tell you why this is not the case. When you understand the radical nature of the forgiveness of God, sin will cease. Charles Spurgeon says this, you can only sin as a man, but God can forgive as a God. You cannot outrun the forgiveness of God. And look what he says. If you're sitting there going, that sounds good for you church people, but I don't know about me. 1 John 2, 2 says, he himself, meaning Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And he goes, hold up, before you religious people start getting all big-headed, it's not just for us. He says, not only our sins, but for the sins of all of the world. I want you to sit in that understanding for a second, not just your sins, but your neighbor's sins and your neighbor's neighbor's sins, and your neighbor's mama's sins, and your neighbor's mama's grandmama's sin. Every sin has been paid for at the cross. The invitation into Christianity is a message to sinful, broken people. You don't have to live under the weight of your sin anymore. There's a better way. Think differently was the message of repentance. You don't have to live under shame anymore. And I love this because for the people that go, no, this, this just seems too frivolous. It doesn't seem like God. It doesn't seem right. It just seems wrong, and I don't know why. It doesn't make sense. It offends my mind. Listen to Titus 2.11 because remember, when we receive forgiveness, we are reminded once again that we get to stand in the place of grace once again, God influencing our life. Titus 2.11 says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. All people. It, meaning grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Friends, when people go, you're just playing the grace card. No, grace is all that I have. It is all that I need. It is all that God wants me to have because from that place of grace, he will produce a fruit in my life I can't do on my own. You can clap for that, somebody. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Friends, 
Why does all of this matter in light of Ephesians 5? Husbands, in order for you to be the husband God wants you to be, you have to first cook pound cake with Nana. You have to experience this forgiveness for yourself and believe it as the core conviction of your life because until you do so, you can never, will never, and won't be able to love your wife in the way that God wants you to. But it happens when a man who's sinful and broken goes, God, I don't get how you can love me time and time again. Friends, this isn't just information, this is meant for transformation. If you can grab hold of this for you, it'll have ripple effects into all of your relationships, but if you remain in shame, it'll have ripple effects into all your relationships. Husbands, love your wives. It's Christ. Love the church. How did you love me? God, you forgive. When I didn't earn it, you loved me more. When I didn't earn it again, you loved me more. When I felt like I've just done this too many times, you loved me more. Watch as you will grow into this unbelievable love for your spouse, even when they're broken. I'm going long, but I want to share one story, and then I'm going to wrap up. of Just a way that this has manifested in my own life with my own spouse. I remember reading this and it just exploding in my heart and I went to my wife feeling this unbelievable freedom of the forgiveness of God for me. And I said, babe, I, I feel so bad because what I'm realizing is that because of my shame, you don't really know me. There's so much stuff hidden in my heart, pain and sin and compromise that I want to hide from you to protect you, but ultimately it just, I'm afraid of being known and unloved. So my wife and I sat there one night just weeping, confessing our darkest sins before one another. I said things to her that most guys would say, you can't say that to your wife. It hurt her. But we sat in the space of grace and we just watched as we could be fully bare before each other, not hiding anything. And I watched as God produced a connection in our hearts that I couldn't have produced if I just went to go love my wife like Christ loved the church. Friends, it has to take hold of you, take root in you. There's two stories in the Bible where sinners were saved, healed, and redeemed. And the Bible says, Jesus says, he says, he who has been forgiven much will love much. You want to love much, recognize how much you have been forgiven. God, in this space right now, I just ask that you would do a work that words in a song can't. God, I know right now you're speaking to people, you're, you're correcting people, you're encouraging hearts. God, you're exposing areas where sin has had a stronghold in our life. It, is, it might even be producing sickness and mental health problems because the shame has been so great. But God, your word says that you are greater and that you know everything about us. We have nothing to hide in the most vulnerable, safe space that we could be is naked before the eyes of God, before the heart of God, allowing you to love us in our broken 
brokenness and our inabilities just the way that you designed us to live in the first place. So God, I just pray for every spouse, every married person, every person that wants to be married in the future. Would you remind them of the radical forgiveness of God and let it bear its fruit? God, bear your fruit in our lives. Lord, you produce fruit in us. God, into all the relationships that we go into. And God, I just pray for every single person, God, who has never placed their faith, their hope, their trust in you. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation, that sinners would be brought into your forgiveness. And that by doing so, God, you would produce right living. You would produce right thoughts. God, that is your job. It is the job of the Holy Spirit. So right now, I want to pray for every person that has never placed their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. You can do that by just saying, God, I believe that what you did on the cross was for me. I believe that you're better at forgiving than I am at sinning. God, I believe that you can produce more in me than I can do on my own. God, in my own flesh, I am a sinful person. Would you bear your fruit in my life? If that's you, I just want to encourage you. Today is a brand new day. One of the words for forgive means to be born. Today is a day where you have a new life. You're born into a new reality of being 100% securely forgiven from this day forward. All your sins have been paid for and he will remember them not. God, seal this work with your Holy Spirit, we pray. And God, I just pray that today we would leave not fixated upon ourselves, but fixated upon the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And everybody at Red Rocks Church said, amen. Let's worship.